Hey, if you have a Bible, grab it. We'll be in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke. You're there. Luke 17. How are you? Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. All, all two of you. Wonderful. I'm having a good one. <laughs> Um, as well. We can interact here. It is possible. Um, I'm R.D., and I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Great to be with you, especially if you're visiting uh, with us, out-of-town family. Glad that you're here, here at uh, Door Creek. Uh, most of the year, we preach through books of the Bible, and that's what we're doing again uh, today. And we have a big chapter, Luke 17, which I'm going to take the whole chapter, and uh, we're going to fly through it, but there's so much good stuff here. And as I was preparing for the message and looking at other commentaries and other people who've preached on it, I saw that people have taken two, three, four, up to ten weeks on this chapter, and we've got 40 minutes, 40, 39 minutes and 58 seconds, 57. Okay, so we're going to get into it, and to help you so that we don't, I don't just run through this and you leave thinking there was so much, I don't know what he said, but that was great, and just leave, uh, we're going to have some headings that may be helpful, because what always ties the Bible together and what ties Luke 17 together is Jesus, who he is, what he's about, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. And so Jesus is going to kind of be what, what has these things tethered together here. And so uh, the four things that just helped me as I prepared this that I hope help you uh, as well is look at four different elements that Luke 17 shows us about who Jesus is. Right? Because Jesus is not just one-dimensional, he's multi-dimensional. And this chapter, because we're going to hit the whole thing, we'll be able to see different pieces of who Jesus is, which gives us a fuller and deeper and greater vision for who he is which is always, always, always good. So the four are this. Jesus is our faith giver. That's number one. If some of you like to have Roman numerals, Roman numeral one. Jesus is our faith giver. Uh, Jesus is our master. Jesus is our savior. And Jesus is our king. So Jesus is our faith giver. There you go. I couldn't make the first one one word. I tried, but I failed. Jesus our master. Jesus our savior. Jesus our king. All coming out of Luke 17. So number one, Jesus, our faith giver. This is the first section, Luke 17, uh, 1 through 6. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Okay, so here's section one, section one of, of four. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We know that because it says Jesus said to his disciples in verse one. So he's talking to the guys who are following him. Disciple means learner. And so they're trying to learn the way of Jesus. And Jesus is always, he's teaching about what does it look like to be a disciple? How do we actually do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? It doesn't just stay in the sky. And so he gives them some, some things to look at here. And the first one, I'll just use the word watch. First thing that a disciple, a follower of Jesus should do is watch. Uh, watch our teaching, watch our doctrine, watch our lives. So that other people who look to us who are young in the faith don't stumble or don't get the wrong idea about who God is. All right, in the first couple of verses, it, Jesus says, um, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. So things in your life can happen to you that may make you stumble in your faith, right? This can happen. 
Uh, whether it's suffering or a disease, other religions, um, other things that we pursue can make us doubt God, doubt Jesus, doubt Christianity. There are always going to be things in our lives that are going to kind of come up against us and make us doubt. That's going to happen. But Jesus says, don't be a disciple who makes other people have these doubts. Don't lead them down the wrong road. And little ones means like little Christians, not like small size-wise, but just in the faith, which in some ways all of us are. And so as we're teaching and training and, and guiding other people, we want to be telling them about the real Jesus and the real God, not one we've made in our image. Because Jesus says, if you've done that, then let's tie a millstone around your neck and throw you into the sea which is very, very, very serious. See, everybody in this room is a theologian. You're welcome. You're the, you can say that on your resume. You are a theologian. And theologian just means that right, you have thoughts, ideas about God, theos and logos. Just put these words together. Everyone's a theologian because do all of you have thoughts about God in some way, right? Yeah, we all do. Just some of us don't have great thoughts about God, right? We're not good theologians because we don't know, right, the real God. And, and Jesus is saying you need to watch both your lifestyle, which comes from how you think you should live. I hear this sometimes, especially from maybe um, younger people, people kind of my age, and they just like, you know, doctrine, theology, blah, just give me Jesus. That's all that I want. I don't want all this dead stuff. I don't want all this. Just give me Jesus. That's all I want. And my first question is always just like, what's Jesus? Uh, how, how do you love Jesus, and how do you know that Jesus loves you? Well, that's theology. All of that is. And so we want to be people who actually are immersed in the Bible so we can present the true image of who Jesus is to everyone in the faith, especially people who are younger, and say, this is the way of Jesus. This is who he is. Both our lifestyle and our teaching have to correspond. Watch yourselves. Jesus says, watch. Disciples watch what they say, how they live. So the other people who are watching them will not stumble and fall. Okay, secondly, um, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Okay, number two, rebuke. So watch your teaching doctrine. Number two, rebuke. So if, which is, I guess, kind of funny because it's not if, it's when. <laughs> right? When your brother or sister sins against you. And it doesn't just mean like your biological family. That's a guarantee. But if God's our father and he's adopted us and all of us in here who are in Christ are brothers and sisters and will be with each other forever which is awesome, but it makes us brothers and sisters. It also means that in church, sometimes we can sin against each other, right? Yes, yes, we can because we're all broken. And so sometimes you have to rebuke other people and call them out when they're not walking in the way of the gospel, when they're not walking in the way of Jesus and say, hey, hey, um, that's not the way of Jesus. You shouldn't live like that. Now, don't be a jerk about it. We all know people who are jerks when they, they're just the rebuking guy or the rebuking gal. Do not be that person, Okay. That is not good. But at the same time, don't just tolerate everything and say, you know what, I'd rather not say anything because I love you. Well, that's not love. That's being indifferent. If you love people, you will rebuke them, right? Especially a brother or a sister because you care about them and you know the way they should be living. So as a family, as Christians, we should be able to rebuke each other in love. And we should also be people who can be rebuked by others. Right? Who likes being rebuked? Who enjoys it? Hand, yep, okay, great, fantastic, good, we've got one. I'll see you after. <laughs> right? No one particularly likes to be rebuked because it can, it can feel bad. But if you're secure in who Jesus is, if you're secure in your relationship with God, you can be rebuked by a brother or sister in love. Insecure people cannot be rebuked, and they cannot handle it well. What happens when an insecure person gets called out, gets rebuked, even in a gentle way? They get defensive, they get angry, why? Because whatever you're talking about, they put all of their identity in, and then they feel like it's them. 
and you're saying, dude, I, I love you. That's why I'm sharing this to you, right? Guys in my small group can always call me out how I'm doing as a husband, as a father, working, and often they do. Saying, RD, we just noticed these things about you, and we want to call you back to the way of, of Jesus, and I can do the same to them, right? And because we have this next element, forgiveness and repentance, it's actually healthy, not just going around rebuking everyone. That's not healthy. That's dangerous. You tie repentance and forgiveness to rebuking, and you have a healthy group. You have a healthy church. And that's what Jesus says next. You rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So he uses kind of extreme examples. Someone sins against you seven times in one day. That'd be pretty extreme. (laughs) But the point is this. If they repent, if they truly turn away from what they're doing and come back to you, come back to God, you need to forgive them. Not necessarily because they deserve it, but because you've been so forgiven by Christ, you can forgive. Right? Forgiven people forgive people. If you've been forgiven vertically, then you have to practice forgiveness horizontally. Doesn't mean there's not justice. Doesn't mean, right, uh, we don't have to pay the price for things that we do. We just kind of wash everything away. That's not what it means. But it does mean that as people who can rebuke others, call out others, as disciples who interact with each other, if we aren't forgiving one another and loving one another, then we're just going to be bitter and angry and distrust each other. And that's not healthy and good. A church will die if that's at the heart of it. Right? We don't want to be like that. And so Jesus is just laying this down very, very clearly. And the disciples, can you imagine? Right? They're like, okay, we got to watch our doctrine and teaching. Great. Check. Wait, we got to rebuke each other. Okay, I think we can do that because Peter is really annoying me. So I can't wait to rebuke him. Green light for that. Wait, if he repents, I have to forgive him seven times. Okay, how do I do that? And I love what the disciples say in verse 6. They say, Lord, increase our faith. Right? Not decrease our faith because we got this, but increase our faith because I don't think in our own power we can live like this. You can't forgive people, rebuke people, be a person who's continually repenting if you're not walking in the power of the Spirit to do this for you, if you're not secure in who Jesus is. And so the disciples are like, Lord, you got to make yourself bigger because we are struggling right now. Increase our faith. And it, uh, as you'll, kinda, you'll see as you study this, um, I'm just going to tell you from my studying, uh, is that it's not so much the size of your faith, but the size of the God your faith is in. That is the point here. Right? How big is your Jesus? How big is your God? Not just how big is your faith, your personal faith in yourself, or even kind of like mustering up your own faith, like, okay, today, Monday, I'm just going to have a lot of faith, and I can do it today. And yet somehow Jesus in your mind and your vision is actually very small. And so Jesus says, you need to make your faith bigger because you need to look to the object of your faith, which is me. Look on me, get a vision of me, and that will grow. That will allow these things to grow in your life. And he uses just the mustard seed. Uh, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which is very small, like I, I could barely, you probably barely even see it. When I was in Israel um, years ago and we came to mustard trees, and our guide Hannah was uh, like, hey, RD, here's a mustard seed. And I was like, I'm sorry, where is it? <laughs> where I thought it's like a biblical seed, so it's just going to be bigger and better than all the other seeds, right? Because Jesus uses it as an example. So give me the big seed because I'm going to be a big seed Christian. And she's like, you know, I didn't say all of that, but she is just like, um, had it in her hand. I'm like, what? That's it? This little seed is what Jesus says you can have faith like? It is because your faith is on yourself. It's in God. And so he can multiply that seed and make it grow because he's the one who gives you faith. He's our faith giver. 
That's who Jesus is. He gives us faith. He increases our faith. He waters our garden, and he makes us grow. Right? All of us are given faith when we come to Christ. And then Christ is the one who grows it as we look to him, and he becomes bigger in our vision, and other things become smaller. Don't look in the mirror. Look into the word. That'll change your life. That'll grow you. Faith is the only way um, that we can also see these next few things. Faith allows us to see Jesus as our master, as our savior, and as our king. So number two, Jesus, our master. Seven through ten, Jesus still talking to the disciples, says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant, when he comes in uh, from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper and get ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And number two, Jesus, our master. So this is a parable that may not strike us with a lot of warm fuzzies. Because he's relating a parable about um, being a servant, being a slave, and saying your relationship with me is like that. All right, the Greek word uh, doulos, which translates servant, is, is usually translated the word uh, slave. And it has this idea of being bought with a price, being purchased, and under the full authority of, of whoever purchased you and buys you. Right? Paul calls himself a bondservant, a slave to Christ who purchased him for salvation. And so there's this idea here in this passage that Jesus is not just our Lord, not just our Savior and our King. Those are fantastic. He's also our master, but he's not a bad master. He's a good master. And so to understand this more, I just thought I'd call on someone wiser than me, Ken Bailey, who lived for 40 years in the Middle East in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, says this about the parable of the master and the servant. He says, in a technological age with a 40-hour week, powerful labor unions, and time and a half for overtime, the world of this parable seems not only distant but unfair. After a long, hard day in the field, such a servant surely has earned the right to a little appreciation, some comforts, and a few rewards. But Jesus is building on a well-known and widely accepted pattern of behavior in the Middle East. The master-servant relationship and its ancient modern expression implies acceptance of authority and obedience to that authority, and it's a matter of honor. Yet the outsider, that's, that's us, needs to be sensitive to the security that this classical relationship provides for the servant and a sense of worth, the sense of worth and meaning and security this provides for the servant. A sense of worth and meaning that is deeply felt on the part of the servant who serves a great man. So worth and meaning are felt in this relationship. These qualities of meaning, worth, security, and relationship are often tragically missing from the life of the modern industrial worker with this 40-hour or her 40-hour work week. The servant offers loyalty, obedience, and a great deal of hard work, but with an authentic Middle Eastern nobleman, the benefits mentioned above are enormous. Okay. So this is the context of the time. And so it's very different from slavery today or in the 18th and 19th century. But the idea, um, as hard as it can be to kind of get our minds around, is simply this. Jesus is saying, you, you, God does not owe you anything. Right? God doesn't owe you anything. For all of your obedience, for all of your work, for all of your things you've done for the kingdom, he doesn't owe you anything because that's your job and that's your duty. Because he's your master. And so you're thinking, like, especially in our modern sensibilities, like, what? <laughs> What's in it for me? What, I've been working all day. I, I've been serving this, this person all day. Why can't I put my feet up and rest, right? And the guy comes in from the field, and the master is like, hey, keep doing your duty. 
And so you're thinking, man, I'm losing all of my rights, all of my freedom. Yes, you are. But you're gaining something much better. You're gaining being a servant of Jesus, which is much better, right? Because you're either a slave to sin, a slave to death, or you're a slave to freedom and liberty and a slave in Christ. And Jesus not only makes us a son or his daughter, he makes us his servant and provides work for us to do that is our duty. But it's not just our duty, it's our delight to serve him. Because by serving him, we don't earn his love, we've already received his love. We owe Christ everything. He owes us nothing. But through his son, through Jesus our master, he's given us everything. And now he says, serve me. Right? This is how we have to understand the parable. Not, I'm going to be a slave and a servant my whole life, and so one day I hope my servant, my master, allows me to get into heaven one day. That's not how it works. You're already in through the gospel. But now he says, work. Do your duty. And don't think throughout your life you earn anything. Right? You gain everything. You get everything. There's security in this relationship, but God doesn't owe you anything. But in his grace, he's given you everything. That's Jesus, our master. We lose everything for him. We owe everything to him. And we know one day he'll give us everything. Okay. Number three, Jesus, our savior. Uh, this next um, passage is really, really good, really, really famous. There's so many things here um, that I want to get into, but we've got about 10 minutes for this, Pat. So... Um, if you want to know more, just let me know, and we can talk after. Verse 11, Jesus, our Savior. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Okay, this is a great, great, great uh, story here. And what I want to just focus on is what separates the Samaritan from the other nine. Right? Why is he different from the other nine? And the, the question beneath that is, how does one become a Christ follower? How does one become a Christian? Because that's what happens to the Samaritan. He gets the full measure of salvation, and the other nine do not get that. So what separates them? Well, there are a couple things that you need in order for, um, uh, for you to become a Christ follower, to become a Christian. And it begins with, number one, need. You have to have need. You can't say, I'm sufficient Right? That's not how it works. You have to become humble and lower yourself and say, I have need. I can't make my life together. I can't make it add up. I have need. And that's what they say. Right? This is what Luke records. They say as Jesus um, goes out to them, verse 13, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. That's need. Have pity. Have mercy. Look at us. We are needy. We have leprosy. We are um, right, disconnected from the community because of our disease, and we can't go back in the community until we're cleaned off by the priest, right? Because so now we're just on our own, and we're alone. That's why they stand at a distance from Jesus. They don't even get near him, but they cry out because they have need, and that's important. It all has to start with need, but that's not enough because a lot of people have need, but they don't go to the source. Number two, what do they have? They have obedience, kind of. You can write kind of if you want. Obedience, kind of. Um, 
That's what Jesus says. He, when he saw them, verse 14, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus doesn't reach out his hand and touch them like he does some other lepers. He's at a distance, he looks at them, and he makes them obey him. Because what would happen in, in that time would be that you would go to the temple, you, you would be hopefully had been cleansed, the disease had run its course, and the priest's job was to look you over from head to toe and say, okay, John, Tom, Mary, you guys, you're clean now, get back into the camp, great job. Right? That's what he did. He didn't like physically cleanse them, didn't have that power, but he made sure they were good to go. And so they're thinking, wait, you're not healing us and you're telling us to go to the temple, to go to the priest? But they did it. And Luke notes that as they went, as they obeyed, all of them were physically healed. You have to have need. There has to be some level of obedience. But even that's not enough. There's a third element that's really, really important. And I'll just use the word recognition. You have to recognize Jesus for who he is. You have to realize who he is in order for you to be saved. And this is what happens, right? I love this verse. One of my favorites in the Gospel of Luke, verse 15. After, right, they've gone their own way. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. He came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Right, the Samaritan, the great enemy of the people of Israel, right? All the other nine probably were Jewish. They should have returned, but you know what? They got what they came for, Jesus, to help them. And now they're on their way because all they wanted from him was just some benefit, just some help, just some healing. And yet this one Samaritan, who had every reason not to come back, turned back when he realized he was healed, and he went back to the source. He went back to the beautiful one who had healed him. Right, there are two ways to approach Jesus. He's either beautiful to you or he's useful to you. And one will make you religious and one will make you a Christian. It will. And this man says, I've been helped, I've been healed. That's great. God heals a lot of people. Right? God has common grace for everyone. We understand common grace is there's rain for everyone. There's sunshine for everyone. God does miraculous healings for everyone without discrimination. Right? There's not just rain in Christian world. Okay, Everyone gets rain. That's common grace. But not everyone receives the blessing of adoption to sonship or daughtership. Not everyone gets that because not everyone recognizes and realizes who Jesus is. Not everyone has that faith given to them by Christ. This man, how, somehow he knows that these guys are going to the temple to be cleansed. And he's like, I think there's a better temple in front of me who can heal me even more deeply. Because my deepest need is not just that I'm ostracized from the community, but that I'm ostracized from God himself. And so he goes back and he worships Jesus, I think, for who he is. And we see him like we see almost everyone else in the Gospel of Luke, where on the ground in humility in front of Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says, and I love this, where are the other nine? Why are the other nine not here to give praise to God? Jesus always concerned with God getting his glory, God getting his due. They don't come back to praise him, and that hurts Jesus because God is due all the glory for healing and miracles. And they leave, and they just say, you know what? We got what we came for. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate it. We're on our way now. Maybe if we get in trouble again, you can help us later. Jesus is not just your helper. He's your Savior. And to treat him as your helper is not good. There'll be a lot of people who get before Jesus one day who he was very useful to them. And they will get before him and he will say, get away from me. I never knew you. 
because you never really loved me for me. You loved me because of things that I did for you. You, you, right? We did all these things for you. We, don't, we, we did all these things for you. And Jesus is like, I never knew who you were because you were never in me. You were never abiding in me. You didn't love me because I was beautiful and most lovable, because I was most worthy, because I was most supreme. That's why you love Jesus, because of who he is. No one else is worthy of it. No one else deserves it. He's the only savior. He's the only master. He's the only king. He's the only one worthy just by who he is. That's God's son. The firstborn over all creation. That's why he deserves all of this. Yes, we're thankful for what he does for us through the cross. Yes, we're thankful he gives us wonderful things. But that is not the only reason that we love him. There there always will be two ways. You can look at Jesus and say, thanks for helping me. Or you can say, I love you because you're beautiful. And I'm enthralled by who you are and by your beauty. And I behold you. Right. (laughs) That will be a different way to live your life. Jesus is our Savior. Faith, faith allows you to do that. Faith allows you to see Jesus as that. Okay. Last section here. We've got, got some time. Okay. Um, Jesus, our King. Jesus, our faith giver. He gives us faith. Jesus, our Master. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing, but he gives us everything because he loves us. Jesus, our Savior, he heals us not just physically, but psychologically and emotionally. He makes us his children. He adopts us. And so we're not just slaves. As good as that is, we're sons and daughters. Lastly, Jesus, our King. Verse 20. I'll split this in two parts. Verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, stop there. So now Jesus shifts to talking to the Pharisees. He was talking to the disciples. Now he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're asking a good question. It's not a bad question. They're saying, hey, Jesus, when is the kingdom coming, right? When's the fireworks show? When are we going to know that everything is finally great again? Because things are not going so well for the people of Israel. They're oppressed by the Roman occupiers. They're looking for him to kind of take the throne in power. And so saying, is it going to happen over here or should we go over here? Where should we wait to see the kingdom come in power? And Jesus is like, um, the kingdom is here. Like it's me. <laughs> I'm the king. I'm the sign. You don't have to go look for other signs or calculate things on a calculator. Okay. If they had those back then, like I'm here. And so Luke believes and Jesus believes that the kingdom is both here and yet it's to come. It's already and it's not yet. That Jesus inaugurates the kingdom through his time on planet earth and begins with the spread of the church to push back all that is dark in the world. But one day there will be a consummation when Christ returns for us. And so I've used these examples before and I'll I'll use them again just because I think they're helpful. They help me at least kind of understand what what does this mean? So uh, I've been watching... um, Band of Brothers this week. Have you guys seen Band of Brothers? Yeah? Okay, three or four you have. Great. Uh, more you should watch it. It's so good. And it's about um, World War II and uh, uh, troops who drop into uh, Normandy and France on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And it covers their movement across Europe until they get to Germany on Victory Day, V-Day. And so D-Day is um, not the beginning of World War II, is it? It's not the end of World War II. But what is it? Well, I think it's the beginning of the end of World War II. And as the Allies advance across Europe, we we see this movement to V-Day. And so you and I likewise live in between D-Day, the arrival of Jesus on earth, his inauguration of the kingdom and Victory Day, when there will be no more battle, no more war. Everything will be changed. 
And so we live in the middle of that, and we live in the church, and our job now is to push back all that is dark and broken in the world, to see the kingdom of God right springing up like mustard seeds all over the place. Right? That's the world in which we live. That's the people that we are. We're citizens of the kingdom because we have a king, and no one else is the king. Jesus is the king. He's on the throne. Right? No one else is on the throne. The other example I've used, which goes well in Wisconsin, this would not play in the South, so I'm happy to use this example. I've used before, and if you want more on this, I talked about this in, in my message on Luke 5, if you're really committed um, to, uh, to this, is remember in, I think it was March, and I know this happens, but I just remember this past year so vividly when it got above 40 degrees. Remember that when it happened in March and everybody's basically naked in the streets, and you're like, dude, it's not summer yet, and you should go to a tanning salon because this is not appropriate, right? And people, but they're just free. And it's like, it's 41 degrees, it's spring. And it's like March 3rd and people are posting on Facebook and everybody's going crazy. And then the next day, what happens? You're depressed again because it's like nine degrees. You're like, oh wait, it's March, not May. So though that can happen in May, but this is March. You know, and I remember that day and I was like, this, you're breathing in the air and it's like, the future has come, spring is here. It's not here, but it's, it's kind of here. Right? And that's what the kingdom is like. Because what happened on that day? You kind of got like this, this spring day that came from the future that kind of came into the present. And you got a foretaste of the world that's coming, where things resurrect, where things come to life, where birds sing, right? where, where trees are filled. Right? It's still winter, but spring has come. And that's the world that we live in. That's where you and I are. We are a spring people in a winter world. Because the dawn has already come. And we're just telling everyone, hey, it's already dawn. It's already dawn. That's what it looks like when we live in between. The king has come and the kingdom is coming again. Jesus Christ is our once and future king. And so we have work to do in this world to be people of the spring. Well, last section here on the future kingdom, verses 22 through 37. The biggest section here, I'll read it, um, and then we'll wrap up. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so switching back to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, the name Jesus has for himself, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning. This is the second coming, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and Drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot, Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Okay, what does this mean? I don't know. <laughs> Let's pray. Man, I... I've, I spent just so much time on this because I'm just, I'm, I'm sure, can you imagine the disciples? They're thinking, here he goes again. <laughs> what, what is he saying? We're trying to figure out what he's saying, right? And so I just want you to know, I don't always know what Jesus is saying. He talks about this a lot, but it's just not clear. And so I just want to 
paint and our, our last minutes ago some broad strokes here about what we're talking about here. Jesus, just if you're like new to church and you just came in this morning, uh, there's a first coming when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and there will be a second coming when he returns for us, right? Amen? Good news. Good news. Well, it's only good news if Jesus Christ, though, suffers and is rejected by the generation, right? The disciples, he hasn't gone on the cross yet. And Jesus says here, he says, there's going to be a time coming when you will long to see my return. You will long to see me again. And people will say, there he is, or, or there he is. But don't believe them. Don't trust them. First, I must go to the cross and suffer and be rejected. And here's the deal. Um, if Jesus doesn't do that, if he doesn't suffer for us in our place for our sin and establish the kingdom here on earth, then when he comes again, it's bad news for everyone. It's bad news for everyone, right? Because it, when he comes again, it will just be like lightning in the sky, flashing and lighting it up. And there won't be time to choose anymore. It already had been done. And so what we're talking about here is eschatology, which is a big word that you just, two Greek words, eschaton and logos, which is the study of last things, basically. And so think left behind, um, don't really think that, but just that type of stuff, okay? Um, end times literature, right? People are pretty consumed with it. And here's what I see. Either people don't care at all about it or they're obsessed with it, right? And they got the calculators, they got the codes, when's he coming back? And they just, you just read the Bible because, right, even Jesus is not sure. It's up to the Father. And I remember when I started at Dallas Seminary, I was kind of just reading a lot of, of apocalyptic literature because I was 22 and didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, you know, the end times and just not in a great place. And like, you know, it's going to be destruction and fire. And Jesus talks about vultures. And it's going to be, I'm, I'm afraid and I am a Christian and I'm nervous about when he comes and just the end of planet Earth and where are we going to be and, and all this stuff. I just didn't have any, I didn't know eschatology. And so I thought I should take a class on eschatology. And so I took eschatology 101, which was a good place to start because I didn't know like what happens at the end. And does this whole place burn up? And then we just go. And, and I remember my professor, he came in um, and we're talking, and he kind of goes through all these scenarios about what people think is going to happen and what eschatology is all about and how, you know, a lot of people use it as kind of fear-based and, and use it to scare people and, and all of this stuff. And I remember thinking, yeah, it is scary. Like, get to the main point. I'm writing all this stuff down. And, and he just stops after a while. And this class is full of people, you know, young, young uh, men and women, you know, trained to be ministers. And he, uh, he's like, let me just stop there. Let me just say this. And if you remember nothing else from the class, write this down. And I thought, Oh, great, that's all I have to remember. And so I'm ready. And he goes, eschatology is about hope. Eschatology is about hope. That's what it's about. See, a cross-shaped eschatology says that because of what Christ has done, when he returns, you and I have the opportunity to be with him forever. And this world does not get destroyed. It gets renewed. God does not snatch us up out of this world and go to some other planet and we live on Mars forever. Right? This world has meaning and value because heaven actually comes down and these two worlds become one in harmony and beauty. Justice and peace and love, they all come together. That's the world that we have coming for us, those of us who were in Christ. And so when you think of eschatology, if you do, um, when you think of the end times, don't just think like destruction and death. Think about the new world that God is making that's already begun now that you and I have an opportunity to be a part of. But here's the deal. Um, I also want to be clear, not everyone gets to be there there are two trajectories for people's lives, and they're not equal, right? One trajectory everyone deserves, that's life without God. One no one deserves, that's life with God. They're not equal. They're not some people who deserve this life and some people who deserve that life. Everyone deserves to be without God forever. Everyone deserves that. That's just what we've earned. 
And yet God in his grace says, I don't want everyone to go that way. I want many, many, many men and women to go this way. And so that's why he suffers. That's why he goes to the cross. Right? And so if you and I are in him, that's how we know. And so I remember, um, and this is going to sound probably like a revival type, you know, old school, just religion thing. But um, if Christ came right now, or if he came right now, where would you go and how would you know? Right, right now, like this second, if he came. Because Luke says, when he comes, there's no time. There's no time. People will be eating and drinking. People will be getting married. All these things will be happening. He'll come like that, and then it's over. And it's kind of like the old school, like, if you got hit by a bus tonight, where would you go, heaven or hell? I remember being like, if I get hit by a bus tonight, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, but it's like old school. Just And so I don't want to, to use it in a fearful way, but I also just want to be clear um, as well, because Jesus is, is very clear. There are two ways to go. And the way you know, right, that you and I get to be with Christ forever is if we are like the Samaritan who comes back to him and falls in his feet and loves him for who he is. Right, that's how we know. That's how you know. That's the way to know. There's no other way to know. Right, religion's not going to help you. How can you ever know if you're good enough? You can never know. Other ways are just going to lead to death and destruction in the end. There's only one way that you and I can look at Christ face to face with joy and not fear. Because every, one day every single knee will be bowed before Jesus Christ. Every single knee will be bowed before him. And some of those knees bowed will look to him and say, yes, we have longed for this. And some will not say that. And as your pastor, as one of the pastors here, I don't want any of you to not be with Christ forever. Right? I don't want you to hear me say, well, I guess I get to choose. Or No, no. Jesus Christ, thankfully, he gives you the faith to believe. Right? If you see him as master, if you see him as Lord, right? if you see him as Savior, if you see him as the once and future king, if you long for his appearing, if you desire to see him, right? the book of the Bible ends with Jesus saying, I, I am coming. And we say, come soon. Come soon. This is what it looks like when Jesus is on the throne. He's coming back for us. Okay, hey, um, just before we go, we did a, we did a lot um, in 38 minutes, so not terrible. Um, we went through it, like this whole thing. I know quickly, I know um, uh, just fast, but I just want to say this before we um, leave and um, at the beginning of this passage with the disciples, they say, um, increase, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And as Mark has, has said, faith is taking God at his word. Faith is not blind hope or blind optimism that I guess in the end, somehow things work out. Maybe I kind of believe that's not what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is certainty and confidence in who God is. We know who he is. We know his promises. Look, we look, at this, we look at this Bible, we look at this, and we say everything this says about God, I believe, I trust in, because he is trustworthy. I have faith. I have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, that can move a mulberry tree into the sea. That's the kind of faith I have. See, faith allows you to see Jesus as your master and to see yourself as a slave, once to sin, now to liberty and freedom. Faith allows you to see Jesus Christ as your savior and you once as an orphan sinner, but now an adopted son or daughter. Faith does that. Faith allows you to see Jesus as your king and you as a citizen of the spring, proclaiming hope to a world that is locked in winter. Faith does that. And Jesus Christ does not leave us on our own to try and figure it out. He gives it to us, and he increases it. So let's be people 
who have unbelievably big faith in a big God to do impossible things. Don't you want faith like that? Don't you want to believe God for not just small things, but big things, things we could look to and say, only God could do this. Only Christ could do this. We really believed him for my life, for my marriage, for my children, for our city, for our nation, for all the nations that we really believed and took him at his word. And he wants to increase and grow our faith by making himself so much bigger in our life that this church would just be such a place of radical faith where people really believe that Jesus Christ got out of the grave. And so what's really crazy after that? Maybe how people look at us, so be it. We're not afraid. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is our master, our savior, and our king. Let's have faith like that. Let's ask Jesus, increase it. Grow it. Water these mustard seeds. Water them. We can't water them but you can and you long to. And let's watch these trees grow and grow and grow by God's grace alone and make a difference in our city, in our nation, and among all peoples. That's what Luke 17 is about. Hey, let me pray for you. Our Father, increase our faith. Would we really believe in your promises and in your purpose, really actually believe it, I pray for, for all of us here that we would be people. Maybe you grant faith to us for the first time now um, or you increase the faith that we have to really take you seriously with who you are. Father, I just ask that you would do immeasurably more than anything we can even pray for or dream for in our own lives, in the life of this church. Father, it's all about you. We're thankful that your son is a good master, a great savior, and the once and future king. And that because of the cross, when he comes again, we will be so overjoyed because we'll be with you forever in a renewed earth that is just filled with your praises. And we're just mustard seed Samaritans, God. And thank you for calling us to such a task as that. Help us be faithful. We ask this in the mighty, mighty, mighty name of Jesus, our master, savior, and King. And all God's people proclaimed. Amen.